visiting, uh, we I have been walking through um, the book of 1 Corinthians in our Sunday morning message. In Sunday school, we're walking through the Old Testament or in 1 Kings, but we are in 1 Corinthians 14, and so we have been dealing with uh, chapters 12 through 14 on uh, the gifts and uh, their purpose in the local church, and especially the gift of tongues, which was the one that the Corinthians were all uh, wanting at the exclusion of everything else uh, so that they might feed the flesh, so they might impress others, and, and a complete misuse of the gifts, and especially of tongues, but of course it's allowed us to just study the gifts in general, and whether the gifts are still for us, that is what we consider the sign gifts, tongues, prophecies, or tongues, healings, and miracles, whether those were things that were given for a time, for a reason, and have they passed away. And so we're uh, right in the middle of chapter 14, actually coming to the end of this study, as next week will be our last message, I believe, in chapter 14. But in, by way of review, let me do a quick review, then I want to uh, uh, go back to this here, just a moment. We have uh, walked through verses uh, 1 through 19 of chapter 14 and seen that Paul's point, overall point, is to show the inferiority of the gift of tongues to prophecy, especially when it is not interpreted. And of course, his point has been, if nobody understands what you're saying, what good is it? And so he is not developing the use of an unknown private prayer language. I'll deal with that in just a moment. Um, and then uh, we saw that the church service is to be a symphony of worship and edification to the glory of God, not one in which there is unknown tongues, emotions, and hoopla, but no one is being taught the word of God. The church is the gathering of saints to hear from God while we give him praise that is part of our worship. Worship that doesn't receive of the Lord and listen to what he has to say and, and be instructed and build up your faith is incomplete. And so the, we are here to receive of the Lord much more than we are here to give him anything. While it is proper for us to give him praise, he doesn't need anything. What we need, we need everything, we need everything from him. <clears throat> now, just a follow up from last week when we dealt uh, with the private prayer language a little bit. <clears throat> I wanted to give you, uh, in one of the commentators I was reading after, who believes in a, that there is such a thing as a private prayer language, and my stance is that while I doubt very seriously that such a thing exists, if, it, if, if that is true and people have it, fine, but it is something to be private and kept to yourself. The Lord is not telling you something to uh, instruct others, if that's the case, but I wanted to give you three reasons that he takes in this in chapter 14 as proves that there is such a thing as pri- private prayer language and what my response would be to those particular things. And so first of all, he says that in verses 13 through 15, the use here is largely private. And uh, so let's just read that just to, so you understand what he's saying. In verse 13 it says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He is saying this is speaking of private prayer language. Verse uh, <clears throat> 15, 
What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. We talked about how that <clears throat> Paul is not interested in praying in tongues, speaking in tongues if there's no interpreter. He wants to pray with his mind. He wants to pray with his understanding. He wants to pray uh, in, in a way that edifies others. And so... I would say that verses 13 through 15 does not say, you have to speculate to say that he's speaking about private prayer language. He's talking about instead a gift that was given in the church setting. Remember the whole context of this is whether tongues should be practiced in church. Not privately. And that's why he says if if you are speaking, if you do have the gift of the Spirit to speak in tongues, you know, Pray that somebody, you or somebody, can interpret. Otherwise, as, as they'll say later on, be quiet. It says, even if you have the gift, if there's no one there to interpret, don't say anything. So, uh, to to separate this from the context of the local church service, I think, is a stretch at best in <clears throat> verse 13. Secondly, he says that... Um, in verses 18 through 19, Paul says that he spoke in tongues more than the Corinthians, yet there's no record that he ever spoke in tongues in, par- in public. So he's saying that verse 18 and 19, when Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, since we don't read of, t- of Paul ever speaking in tongues in public, he must be speaking in private. But you begin to see the stretch that's going on here, because... <clears throat> We're not told that Paul ever spoke in private in tongues. Why wouldn't we assume that when he spoke in tongues, he spoke in public? He was an apostle, and tongues were proof of people's apostleship. Why would we assume that when Paul uh, went to a town, he spoke in tongues uh, in the synagogue to let the Jews know that what's going on? Right. So it's it's an assumption that can't be proven. There's no record, as I said, that he ever spoke with a private prayer language either. So why can't we assume that he just spoke in the same way that they were speaking in tongues in in the book of Acts? And in fact, he goes on to, he's contrasting the use of tongues in public to start with. As we see here, starting in verse 18, where it says, and this again is kind of in, in way of review of last week, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, because that's the whole point of all this, I would rather speak five words in my with my mind, you know, everybody understands, in order to instruct others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the point is not that Paul has this private prayer language that he speaks that nobody knows about. He's saying, look, at the end of the day, What's important is that we edify, not that we speak in tongues that nobody understands. <clears throat> and then the final point uh, this one commentator makes is that in verse 28, Paul instructs the tongue speakers to speak to himself and to God. It says, there, and we'll get to this next week, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So he takes that to mean that if you don't have uh, an interpreter, you can't say anything in the church, but it's okay at home or when you're in private to speak in tongues, even though you don't understand what's going on, because you're speaking to God as if God somehow needs our babbling uh, in some way, uh, and, and and so forth. So that's his point. And again, I would say that just 
uh, this comes upon him at church, it, it, all he's saying there is don't exercise it. He's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be refer, referring to anything in private. He's just saying that if it comes upon you at the church service, which is when we would expect it to happen in those days, be quiet because if, if you don't have an interpreter. There's nothing that suggests that this would happen when he is alone. Because he's saying this in the context of this local church service. So, anyway, the, the, I just thought it was interesting of the way he assumes a lot to prove a point, but you almost end up making it say much more than it actually says, and we don't want to be guilty of that. So I don't know if that was helpful or not, but anyway, uh, I, I did it. There you go. <clears throat> and we've spent a few weeks here dealing with the problem in the Corinthian church with the gift of tongues. If they are used improperly, of course, Paul's not against tongues. He says earlier he, he's glad if everybody speaks in tongues, but it's got to be done properly. There's got to be, an, everybody's got to understand what's being said. And overall, Paul seems to make the point that everything that doesn't edify is of no value. So if we speak and cannot understand, we haven't accomplished anything. In other words, your mind matters. As Christians, and of course, you know, the very first word we read here in verse 20, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, or you might say innocent in a sense when it comes to evil, but in your thinking be mature. Christianity, if it's anything, it is a religion of the mind. It is because this is the only revelation we have. And this requires study and thought and meditation. We have to, if we're going to glorify God, we got to know why we do what we do. God doesn't accept empty ritual. And much of the false religion, even the name of Christianity, is simply that. It is ritual. It is unthinking actions, but without content. Nobody knows what's going on. or We're doing things out of tradition, but we don't know why. And so what we're saying is that God just wants to see us with activity. He doesn't care if we know what we're doing or not. But you can't worship God without your mind. Uh, John Stott wrote a book in which he makes three points. That shows, in each one of these, you see how that different groups of Christians or so-called Christians have, are doing the same thing that the Corinthians were doing. They were, their, their, their religion or their church services was not producing edification, <clears throat> teaching. And so he says that, um, he, he decries the mindless Christianity of our time in three different ways. First, there's Catholicism, which has meaningless ritual. And, of course, that's something we're all familiar with. Some of you came out of Catholicism. You know that uh, what's important is the ritual, not necessarily whether you understand with your mind or, or, or not, as historically been Catholicism. Secondly, is what he calls radical Christianity, which in his mind would be like liberal Christianity, that which stresses ecumenicalism, getting together and getting along with everybody, or, or uh, social action. But, but think about it. So Christianity is reduced to uh, social action, charity or whatever, but not in the careful adherence to the word of God. 
And if, if, if liberal churches have anything in common, it is that they do not consider the Word of God all that important. They don't consider it the Word of God to start with, at least not all of it. And uh, they take it or leave it at their convenience. <clears throat> and so it results in the same thing, right? The, the, the edification it takes a back seat, if you have it at all. And then thirdly, he points out the charismatic movement. And again, it's not to say that, that, that there aren't saved Christians in, in that group, in that movement, but the problem is that they have divorced, he says, Christianity from rationality. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were speaking in tongues. The services where everybody was speaking in tongues, and, and as we read, and so someone comes in and looking around and thinking, what is going on? And if you've watched any of the YouTube uh, videos or uh, been to a church like that, you you notice that that's a lot of, in a lot of cases, that's what's going on. A lot of music, a lot of hoopla, a lot of emotion, but there's no real careful uh, teaching of the Word of God, and people then cannot be edified. And so yeah, you, you see the application of all this, of why Paul makes this, uh, spend so much time dealing with this. <clears throat> Not long ago, I heard of a prominent Christian leader who uh, was sharing his uh, private devotional life, and he said that he would. His habit was that he would go into a dark room, and he would empty his mind. And anytime you hear anybody say they're gonna, that we should, or that they empty their mind, a big red flag should come, come right up. Because if we're people of the word. How does emptying your mind help? I read a lot in the Bible about meditating, uh, you know, studying the Word and meditating and, and, and thinking it through. But he empties his mind, and then he opens himself up to God speaking to me. And so, whatever thoughts come into his mind, he takes as God speaking to him. If if I took my thoughts and and claim them to be from God, uh, I'd be in a big heap of trouble because my thoughts do not often reflect God's thoughts. This is where this is to, this is to direct our thinking, and it just it just shows you the same problem, this mentality that God's word really isn't sufficient. We need something else. God hasn't done a very good job communicating, so, Lord, tell me what you want to know. Well, that's just a big, lazy excuse for not to study it to start with, as far as I'm concerned. And so, starting in verse 20, all that, as I guess is an introduction, Paul reminds us that the gift of tongues are given, what what, what were they given for to begin with? And so here... Uh, it's an interesting phrase in the middle of verse 20 is an interesting phrase in the middle of all this. Um, as we're going to see in a moment, he's telling us that there are certain conclusions that we should come to by the, by the time, by this time in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he, he's kind of starting to sum up his point. And notice here, as he, in verse 20, he says, I want you to be adults to stop and to think things through. If, if children are anything, right, especially young children, is that they don't think seriously. I mean, obviously they're using their minds and their thinking, but they don't have enough information, enough learning, enough life experience to, to compare what's going on to anything, right? So they're just kind of going 
wild. They're just, what they see is what they're doing. What they want is what they want. They're not thinking about the future, right? That, that's what children do, young children. Then as they grow, what happens? You start to say, wait just a minute. I want to do that, but there are other things to consider how it's going to affect other people, how it's going to affect me. You know, what's what's it going to lead to? Uh, as Christians, we, we same thing. Does this honor the Lord? Will this uh, hurt my testimony? Will this edify? Which is kind of what Paul's been saying here. We gotta we gotta stop and think. We gotta use the Word of God. That's what Christians do. A Christian cannot live life wide open, just doing whatever, going crazy. Just we gotta be thinkers, and that's why in this day and age it becomes difficult because. There's so much to distract us. Music on all the time. Any, something to watch. Something to do. And that's all well and good, but we've got to be able to take time to think. Be thinkers. Be able to judge everything. And so Paul says, let's stop and think about this. These Christians claim to be sophisticated because in, in Corinth, wisdom was the, was the ultimate. But they weren't wise in scripture and in this application <clears throat> they were very good at misapplying the scriptures and doing what they uh, things that were really sinful but they weren't good at worshiping and edifying one another they were uh, too too busy hurting and show it being unloving to each other let's turn over to, to Ephesians chapter uh, 4 just wanted to read uh, something here real quickly I think that would be an example of what I'm talking about. Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teaching, different gifts, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So there's a purpose on all this. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're, all the, the gifts of the church are to help people, help the church teach, and help us to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, is it just so that we might learn more? No, because as we grow, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and produces Christ's likeness. Produces little Christ. People who honor the Lord, who live like Jesus. Unto the glory of the Father. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we wanted to mature. We wanted to grow. We ultimately, of course, it won't be till we are glorified that we are perfect, but that we're growing. So that we may no longer be children. So it's no surprise that Paul uses similar language here. And what is, what is it to be in his child like? Tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Would there be anything easier than to take a young child and to uh, lead them astray in some way? Right? Because they don't, they don't know. They don't have any defense. That's what's so pathetic and, and disgusting. What's going on today with grooming our children? As you're, you're talking to these children who, in, in many cases, haven't even reached puberty, that uh, to, to mutilate yourself for the rest of your life, and then the child doesn't know what's going on. 
And then when they reach 20, they get in their 20s, they realize what in the world's happened to them. And you're starting to see people say, uh, this wasn't right, what they did to me. Well, but think about it in the spiritual sense. Paul says, if you don't grow in the word, if your church isn't geared for teaching the scriptures, you're going to have a bunch of, of spiritual pygmies or spiritual children who who are just, everything they hear, they, they believe, they, they, don't, they aren't able to recognize false doctrine, they don't recognize the wiles of Satan, or falling into sin all the time. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head of the Christ, from whom the whole body joined, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the, 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 the need, the emphasis of edification, of growing in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we can keep on reading, but we need to ask ourselves, what are we trying to do in life as Christians? Now, you know, we all have hobbies and pursuits and there's and a lot of professions aren't where you just kind of go and, and do a mindless activity. A lot of professions you have to have training and skill and uh, that's all well and good and, and many will spend thousands of dollars um uh, that you might not have to pay back if, if Biden has his way, whatever. But uh, time, years to develop their craft, which is all good. And Paul's kind of saying, be careful here. Because while all that is, is good and necessary sometimes in life, as Christians, you don't, you don't get to say, well, you know, I want to be a real good engineer, or a real good painter, or a real good doctor, and I'm going to spend... My whole life studying this thing. But, you know, if I show up and, and half-heartedly listen to the pastor once a week, that's good enough. You know, I believe in Jesus. And Paul says, no, so God didn't save you to, to give him a, a passing wave now and then. We are to study. We are to, to grow in the Lord. The, 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 we're going to spend eternity studying the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to be unfolding his glory for eternity. There's nothing more important. And I think the point here then is be careful that you uh, keep first things first. Paul is chiding the Corinthians for being simplistic Christians. Simplistic Christians, I think, are often nominal Christians. They're Christian in name only. <clears throat> they were not interested in learning, but they were interested in having an emotional high, an experience. The tongues, they, they that's pretty neat. To listen to some message every week and to have to think through something for an hour or so, uh, that's a lot of hard work. But to have a lot of good music and tongues and, and activity, well, that's who doesn't like that, right? But we're here to preach the gospel, not to experience the evil of the world. So he says, be children to evil. Uh, you don't need to... You don't need to know what's every experience the evil of this world. You don't need to know everything about it. We want to be aware. We don't want to be naive necessarily in, in all things. But uh, we, what we need to study is the word, not the world. Um, in First Corinthians 1, remember uh, the first chapter here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
So we don't have to come across to the world as wise because the world is offended by the gospel. And you see this all the time. People who believe in creation, who who believe what the Bible says about Noah's Ark, are dismissed as idiots by this world. That's okay. You know, they, they, they can't accept the truth because the truth means that they're going to answer to God someday. So don't be surprised by that. Paul says you're going, to, you're going to be foolish to the world, but it is through the foolishness of preaching that God saves people. So the skeptic who hates God, when the preacher, when someone tells them the gospel, that's, that's how God saves that soul. So we don't need to be particularly seem to come across intelligent to the world. It doesn't mean that we want to be purposely foolish. We want to be intelligent, right? We want to be able to interact intelligently with people. But we're here to preach the gospel, tell them about Christ. And we don't need to look like we have it all together, like, like nothing bad happens to us because we're Christians. No, it's through suffering and through weakness that the church grows. God will take care of all that. Remember when Abraham took his word to dives in hell in Hades when uh, he dives said to Abraham, "Send Lazarus back. I've got five unsaved brothers, and if Lazarus goes raises from the dead, he goes back, and that's going to impress them." And Abraham said, uh, "They've got Moses, but Moses wasn't alive, of course, at that time." What does he mean by that? They've got, the, they got the scriptures. That's how God saves. They don't, they don't need a miracle. We don't need tongues. We don't need hoopla. We just, we just need to preach the gospel, and God will do his work. Because that's how God saves us. You know, you read Romans 10. It's, it's, it's how they believe they don't have a preacher. It doesn't say how will they believe if someone's not performing miracles. Because God doesn't use that just to regenerate. And so in verse 21, he kind of gets back to uh, one of his points that we've already talked about, where he says, In the law it's written, By people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord, which kind of interesting in itself. We don't have time to develop that. But as we let's just refresh our minds to what we've already said. That the gift of tongues primarily, as Paul is pointing out here, was a sign to the unbelieving Jews. As he quotes from Deuteronomy 28, 49, the Lord says, I will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. And then, of course, he's quoting here from Jeremiah uh, chapter 5. Where it's expanded a little bit. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. And Paul quotes that and says, that's what tongues is all about to start with. Now, as we'll see in a moment, there are other uses for tongues. But he said, the, the, the reason Acts, Pentecost took place as it did, was that was a sign to the to the Jewish leaders and to the nation that that God is abandoning the old covenant, 
He's abandoning the Jews as a people. And now if you want to be saved, it's not because you're a Jew. It's because you're going to, by faith, <clears throat> repent and trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And these disciples speaking in tongues was a sign, fulfillment of that prophecy. And that's why in Acts 2, 12, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? When they heard him speaking in a, in a language they didn't understand. And others were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine. And I imagine the Jewish leaders only heard gibberish. And so Peter goes on to explain to them in his sermon in Acts 2, what does this mean? And he uh, tells them, for instance, uh, because he, he tells them about Jesus has come, you've crucified uh, the Lord of glory, the son of David that was promised, and, 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 and that judgment's coming upon you. And so he finishes, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And of course, 3,000 people got saved. Because they understood that the, the tongues was a fulfillment of the prophecy there in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy. <clears throat> a judgment has come upon us. And the only hope we have now is to, to accept the, court, the, the stumbling block that we have rejected. <clears throat> then notice also there Luke 19.43 For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Of course, Jesus here is talking about 70 AD when the, the armies of Rome would come and would destroy uh, Jerusalem and, and carry everybody off <clears throat> and tear down the ground you and your children within you <clears throat> and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The, your Messiah has visited you. You have rejected him. You've rejected the covenant. And so the Lord is rejecting you. And, and 70 AD was that final thing. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And of course, we've dealt with Daniel and, and, and the prophecies there. But in other words, what he's saying is that the tongues was saying that that time of visitation has happened, is happening. The end is coming. And that's what, that was a sign, the tongues was a sign to them about that. And so when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and the Jews scattered, there was no longer a need for tongues because tongues were a signpost of something coming. And once it came, you don't need the signpost anymore. You know, when I'm traveling to a city, I expect now and then to see mileage markers. <clears throat> but when I get to the city, I don't need the mileage markers anymore. I'm, I'm living in the city. I'm there. I, I, don't, I don't need signs of, a, of its approach. <clears throat> and so what I'm saying here is that we are in the kingdom and so we don't need signs and gifts that were given primarily to show that the co one covenant has ended and we now live in the uh, the everlasting covenant of Jesus Christ. That was always the point. The finished canon, I think, comes into play here too since the, we have all the revelation that explains all this to us. 
something they didn't always have in the early days. And so it's no accident that, that the tongues movement today is primarily a, uh, a sign of the giving of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> because it wouldn't make any sense to use it as it was ri- originally given. But what they're doing is, is that they're living in the city, within the city limits, but they're turning around and looking for the sign of the coming of the city or how to get into the city. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the, the tongues had a purpose that, to, to let people know that judgment had come, to let people, the church know that the, uh, the, the apostles know that the Holy Spirit was now given to all people who were saved, both Jew, Gentile, Sumerian, whoever. And, and by this time, everybody knew that. There was no question about that, right? So, so why use the sign anymore? And then there were a couple other reasons, as I mentioned, uh, for, for the sign that, that, that tongues kind of, uh, helped understand. I think about Galatians 3.23, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And you say, well, how is that a, a, a purpose of, of tongues? Well, I think that the way it was manifested at Pentecost shows that the gospel, remember that there wasn't just one language given, there were many languages given, so everybody, in, from no matter where you came from, heard it in your own uh, language, right? And it was a sign that the gospel is going forth to the whole world as prophesied in the Old Testament. It was not going to be just a Jewish thing, but uh, the kingdom was going to comprise all nations, right? So the, the tongues were in many uh, different languages, for one thing. And then... uh Another reason is that it was a sign of authority. And again, we've dealt with this. Tongues were a sign of an apostleship. That someone had that calling, that gift, that authority. And so he would speak in tongues. And we saw the passages about that as well. So we won't go back into all that. And so that brings us down to verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Which would make perfect sense with the verse we just said. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now this is not, at first glance, is a little confusing in and of itself. I want to spend just a moment here to explain what's going on here. Um, the main purpose of tongues, as I said, is a sign of judgment to the unbelieving Jews. And that overall, saints don't need tongues in because there are far more useful Gifts that is prophesying, teaching, preaching is a much more useful gifts than tongues that were primarily for the unbeliever to start with. Now it's good to know that the word sign is not in the original when it comes to the phrase with prophecy. So technically, it doesn't say that prophecy is a sign for not for believers but for unbelievers, but that prophecy is useful. It's for of un, uh, unbelievers more so than believers. Now, both of these can be used by both. So he's talking about in general. In other words, so we, we preach that the one who's going to benefit most of the preaching are going to be the, the believers who are lit, hearing what God has to say and growing. But we know that, of course, when you 
preach the gospel, when you preach the gospel, that is how God saves the unbeliever. But of course, when he does that, he makes them a believer, right? And I think that's what he's referring to there, that tongues, first of all, he says, tongues really aren't for the church to start with. They're not the most most useful thing anyway. It's preaching. And that's kind of, think, his point there. Then in verses 23 through 25, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So it's 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 not difficult to kind of follow his train of thought here. <clears throat> These verses aren't contradicting verse 22, but he's moving on to how we apply all this. Therefore, as he's going to point out later. Everyone in the church was was trying to speak in tongues, and so therefore you're misusing them. And so these two verses are describing what was going on in the Corinthian church. Now you can imagine if you were a pagan in Corinth at that time, and you really didn't understand what Christianity was, and, and what was going on, and you walk in, and... Uh, you hear all this. What are you going to think? Well, first, well, he says, they're going to think you're out of your mind. I think he, he, what he's saying here is that he's going to say, boy, this looks very familiar. This is what we do down at the pagan temple. We, we, when we have our ecstatic uh, speaking in tongues and, and emotional things going on, this, this looks a lot like what I'm used to. What's going on here? I thought this was different. He's not going to understand in some way. And so I think Paul has made his point in, in these three chapters that uh, that the Corinthians look a lot, their services sometimes look a lot more pagan than they do Christian. And so when tongues are misused, which involves no interpretation, then unbelievers are confused and repelled, and believers are left with nothing. That, I think that's his point on these verses. Unbelievers are confused and perhaps repelled, Believers are left with nothing because getting an emotional high at church, I think there's a lot of churches where that's the point. We have a 45-minute song service to get everybody excited, and I'm not knocking that. But we, unfortunately, very often what happens is you have a very short, uh, if not, if non-existent, uh, preaching service. There's, there's no real depth to the teaching. People go to church to they think they're receiving the Holy Spirit or enjoying the Holy Spirit because, boy, did, we're, we just had a, <clears throat> I just got a great feeling. But they didn't learn anything. Oh, that's, I think this was going on here. That's not what church is to be. You're left with nothing. Because as soon as, I know for me, and I think that's pretty much true about everybody, once you walk out that door and you hit the real world, real world, <laughs> real world, whatever emotional high you had is gone. As soon as you get in with your work people and you hear the filthy language and all the stuff that goes on here, the emotion is gone. It's not going to help you. It's what you know. It's it's the faith you've got in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for him that's going to sustain you. So I'm all for having emotion. We should rejoice in the Lord and we should love the things of the Lord, but if it's not based on truth, it, it won't last. And so in verses 24 through 25, but if all prophecy 
If all prophesy and an unbeliever and an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. So here's the contrast. If instead people are exercising a gift that is edifying and teaching and building up, then he's learning something and he's hearing the gospel and he would uh, perhaps be saved. There's a point to the service. And so we finish here verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, uh, so what he's saying, he's not asking a question, he is, it's kind of rhetorical, and he's saying, here's, what's the point of all this? The, the, these, these last several weeks, in a sense, of our study of these, of these, uh, three chapters, what's the point? When you come together, each one should have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, a gift. Everybody, the church, everyone has gifts by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, let all things be done for building up. Now we'll stop there. There's obviously more things we want to get into, uh, Lord willing, next week. But he said, don't forget this. This is the point. All the t- all the gifts are to Build up the church. And if it's not doing that, it's not a gift or it's not being used properly. And so Paul says that the services are to be orderly, as we'll get into uh, next week. There's a goal in mind. And that God has given different gifts to different people so that we can be, be, we're in a sense like an orchestra. We have a point, music to be played, a song to be sung. We're not, it's not to be confusion. We're not to look like a orchestra that's tuning up. We're to be producing something. If it purposely, the, the church is purposely not to be a place of emotional confusion. Listen, I want there to be emotion. I want people to re- enjoy what they're hearing. I want them to be touched by the Holy Spirit, by truth, to say amen, to rejoice in the songs. To leave on an emotional high. There's nothing wrong with that. I, to some degree, if that doesn't happen, I would wonder what's wrong. Something's wrong with my preaching or something's wrong with you. If you don't, at times, just rejoice in what you're hearing, right? But it is not to be a place of emotional confusion. Where we have emotion, but we really don't know why. Or it's really only because the music is really good. Because what does that produce? And by the way then, I think this last verse makes it plain that special music is part of worship and not to be despised as inappropriate or useless. You say, well, Pastor, where did did that come from? Well, there are those who think that the only congregation should sing. You don't need special music or anything like that. This congregation should sing. But, But notice what he says here. You know, some people have the gifts that others don't. And while congregation is certainly important, congregational singing, if someone has a gift to sing and to uh, lead, the, the, as it were, the, the congregation of worshiping God through song, to, to, to a beautiful song or uh, a beautiful, maybe you wrote a poem or whatever, what's wrong with that? The different ways, different gifts that people have. And, and so to say that, you know, I think the idea sometimes is, well, when you when one person sings or a few people sing, uh, it's pointing to them and it's just lifting them up in pride and, and we don't need any of that. 
Well, I mean, let's let's be like adults and think about that for a minute. Because if that's the case, then we shouldn't have a preacher. Because you got one person speaking, and uh, that'd be a source of pride. Well, sir, it, it can be. It's absolutely true. Can it be a source of pride if you stand up and you play a beautiful song on the violin? Or you sing a, a beautiful song? Can it be a source of pride? Yes. Everything we do can be a source of pride. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything. That means we judge our heart. We look into ourselves and say, Lord, help this to be something that honors you and not me. But we don't say, well, you know, there's a possibility that if you're doing this, you could sin and do it, and so we don't want you to do it. Nothing will get done, right? So let's just stop. And, and again, that's not really a problem in this church, I don't think, but it's certainly some, there are those who would think that, and I, I think it just shows a lack of really <clears throat> thinking it through. So it reminds us what things edify here, this last verse. One commentator said that the only thing that edifies is the word. Now, you know, I give them, I give them credit, you know, because sometimes you don't say everything you, that needs to be said when you write a commentary, just like I don't say everything that could be said when I, every time I preach, right? But on the surface, there are other things that edify other than just preaching. That's the main thing, obviously. But we can praise and sing and pray and serve and encourage uh, each other, and I think all that is building up the church, right? So, again, let's just kind of be well-rounded in our thinking. Let's let's close by turning over to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter five, and I want to read starting in verse eleven to the end of the chapter. It's not long, but I want you to again with what we just said as we read this. See if there is an application here. Does it support what I just said? First Thessalonians five, beginning in verse eleven. <clears throat> Therefore, <clears throat> encourage one another and build up build one another up, just as you are doing. And I don't think here, as we're going to see, he means that everyone's got to preach. <clears throat> that would be a problem, right? So he says in verse twelve, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all. So, so we're reading ways to build the church up. Uh, respect those who the Lord has given in, put in authority. Encourage peace. Sometimes it means admonishing the idle. Maybe though, as Paul says elsewhere, those who won't work, those who are living in sin, sometimes they've got to be corrected. That, that's all part of building up. Help the weak and the faint-hearted. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, to everyone. Boy, how would that not change the church? Rejoice always. Right there is a great way to me to edify, to rejoice, to to always be rejoicing, even when in grief, in, in trial and tribulation, to always be full of the joy of the Lord. There can't be a greater way to encourage others than that. Right? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And, and that reminds us that prayer is not always formal. It's not always public. But we are always to have an attitude of prayer. We're taking everything to the Lord. We talk to the Lord. We're familiar with 
speaking to him. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, to give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, that right there is a message. Do not quench the spirit. I don't have time to get into that. Do not despise prophecies. In other words, take them seriously. But test everything. We'll see here, in, in, even in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, that even when someone is pro- you exercising the gift of prophecy, you didn't just assume that it was from the Lord. You tested it to make sure that it was biblical. Right? And so he says here, Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, that has set you apart from the world, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. That's edifying. That's needful. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Even a holy kiss can be encouraging, right? To know that you love me, that you're willing to show affection to me, and I you, right? I put you under the oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I hope that in reading that, you begin to see that Paul's just saying the same thing. He doesn't say it the same way to every church. But he's making the same point. When you come together, there's a purpose to it. And anything that doesn't fit that purpose, it needs, it needs to pass away. And I think that is the position that I'm trying to show as we go through these books. Any questions or comments?